This chapter begins the next major portion of Exodus. We had the beginning where we kind of had a prologue with the birth of Moses. And then when God called him at Mount Sinai, he sent him back. We had the whole Exodus story, the 10 plagues, Pharaoh, let my people go and all that. We had a, a, another small section where they came from the land of Egypt to the wilderness. And now in chapter 19, they have arrived at Mount Sinai. So this is a, a mile marker in the book of Exodus, but this is also a big mile marker in the whole Bible. This chapter is one of maybe a handful that you ought to know as pivot points and tent poles in the scripture. For the next several chapters, and believe it or not, even into the next books, God is going to be laying out and establishing the term of his covenant with Israel. This is what is called the Mosaic Covenant. And that understanding what this is is absolutely essential for understanding the rest of Scripture. So we need to pause and focus on this for a while. And in fact, we have been focusing on certain aspects of it, the completion of it, in the book of Romans lately. We've been seeing that the law, which this is essentially what Exodus and Leviticus and following is, the law was always intended to bring us to Christ. It was always God's plan. And even in these first verses, in the most basic form, you can already see the beginnings of the new covenant, of the gospel that God is going to bring to the world. And I think we ought to be motivated as we read this story to the gratitude and faith in the Lord and obedience, not just because of what God did here, but what God did at Calvary and what he continues to do today. So if we look at verses 1 and 2, We read, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Okay, so here the Hebrews arrive at the mountain, which is Mount Sinai. God promised Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. He said, this is the sign that you will look for. You and your people will worship me at this mountain. So Moses is now back at this mountain with the people, and they are indeed going to worship the Lord there. It says this happened on the third new moon after they had gone out of Egypt. There is a little uncertainty here, whether by saying the third new moon, this is the calendar third month. Or this is the third month since they left. The language can, can mean either one. We know that they left on the, or they had Passover on the 14th day of the first month. So is this now two months later and we're in month number three? Or is this three months later and we're technically in month number four here? It, it's uncertain, but it's, it's been a couple months since they left Egypt. And in fact, they're not going to leave Mount Sinai until the second month of the second year. So they're going to be at Mount Sinai for a long time. And as far as the pages of Scripture go, they're not going to leave Mount Sinai until Numbers chapter 10. So we're going to be here for a while. The setting's not going to change in the Old Testament until Numbers chapter 10, when they finally depart. Up till now, it says they set out from Rephidim and they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They were in the mountain, near the mountain range, remember, of Horeb. In verse 6 of chapter 17, it says that the Lord split the rock at Horeb, which will be a, another term for Mount Sinai, because Horeb was the mountain range, and Sinai was the specific peak where they're going to meet with the Lord. 
So they were previously they were in range, but now they've actually arrived there. And remember, there were so many people, more than 600,000 men, not counting their families. It probably would have taken time for them to arrive and, and be at the mount itself. They've already had the war with Amalek, and it seems that Jethro has departed, although there certainly could be some overlap uh, between chapters 18 and following with, with Jethro. Who knows? Now let's talk a little bit. I promised we would talk about this, and um, I wish I could come to a really strong, rousing conclusion for you, but I can't. But where is Mount Sinai? And I'm going to tell you right up ahead of time, we're not sure. And that's probably for the best, as I'll explain in a minute. But, you know, there are a couple very good options, and some of them really cause you to raise your eyebrows and think, ooh, is this it? But uh, as I said when we were talking about where the Red Sea parting happened, it's not a magic mountain. It's not like you could go there and somehow get secret supernatural power or, you know, the bush is not still burning up there, if you know what I mean. But it is interesting to talk about this. So I'm going to give you two of the, of the more popular options, and one of them is certainly more popular than the other. The traditional site of Mount Sinai is a place called Jabal Musa. That is, that is Arabic for the mountain of Moses. So Musa kind of sounds like Moses. You've got a map here. This is the Sinai Peninsula which of course was named after the writing of scripture because this is where the traditional place of Mount Sinai is. It is down in the southern tip of that peninsula. This is where St. Catherine's Monastery is located and we have a picture of it there. And most of the time when you hear people talk about where Mount Sinai is, this is exactly where it is. This site was preferred and, and the reason it came to be so popular, and I do not think that this discounts the possibility, by the way. The reason this is so popular is because Helena, who was the mother of Constantine, some, of course, call her Saint Helena. Constantine was the first Christian emperor who stopped all the persecution against the Christians. She went on a, a very famous journey through all of the holy sites throughout Israel and, and the surrounding areas, and it was her... Uh, I guess decisions or, or at least her experiences that came to give us the locations that we identify today. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, for example, and the Garden Tomb and things like that. And Mount Sinai was one of them. And in 330 AD, she ordered that monastery to be built, St. Catherine. So it also is sometimes called St. Helens for that reason. So 330 AD, there were already people there, already people worshiping there and, and regarded it as Mount Sinai. So it wasn't as if she just made it up. But it is to be said that this is not definitive either. This is the traditional site, but because it's traditional, that doesn't mean that we have to accept it. And in fact, it is often questioned now. Uh, St. Helena, as she's called, is, is very often maligned by people that disagree with her, especially by people who hate Constantine. Uh, I, I don't think that's fair. I think that she was, you know, so enraptured with the scriptures and with the Lord that she wanted to go and see all this stuff. And I don't think she was the first one or the last one that felt that way. But there's a few things to question here. Number one, this area what is now called the Sinai Peninsula, was still under the authority and the jurisdiction of Egypt at this point. And we've gone all over, over all of this before. So it seems unlikely that this mountain at the southern tip of that peninsula would be Mount Sinai because that was still Egypt's territory, even if it was not Egypt proper. So that's one thing. Also, it confuses the Red Sea crossing, which we already talked about. If they crossed the sea to get there, we already talked about this, and if Goshen is already in the northeast of Egypt, where exactly did they cross the sea? 
And there are some liberal scholars that say, well, they probably crossed a pond or a, or a, you know, a creek or something like that, which we don't accept. And, and the traditional answer to that is they, they had to kind of go south and then swing around to cross, which, okay, that's entirely possible. It also, though, and this is the, the big one for me, it makes the distances between the nations that they interact with to be a, a little long. So, for example, they had just had a fight with the Amalekites. The Amalekites typically are going to be far to the south of Israel, and they're certainly far to the south, but not exactly that far. And also Midian, we know where Midian was, and Midian was to the south and even to the east of the Promised Land. And if that's where Moses was grazing his father-in-law's sheep, he certainly went a long way out <laughs> to graze the sheep, many, many miles away. Also, Kadesh Barnea, where they're going to cross, is 11 days' journey. And it's pretty close, but it's, it's a quick 11 days as opposed to the other option we're going to look at. So there are certainly some things to question textually and also geographically about this, this place, Jabal Musa. And uh, if that's the one you like, that's just fine. But let's look at the other option here. This is the Jabal al-Laz, which is Arabic for the Mountain of Almonds. So there's no uh, connection to Moses there. It's just called the Mountain of Almonds. This is down in what's called the Arabian Peninsula. So this is uh, Saudi Arabia. And it's wilderness just like the other places. And don't let the name, again, Sinai Desert or Sinai Peninsula uh, throw you off because we gave that location that name because of the traditional site. And so we're, we're questioning that the thing that caused us to name it that in the first place. Now, this is a minority view here. It's gaining popularity, but there's a few things. Number one, if you believe, as we do, that they, they crossed the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the eastern antenna of the Red Sea, then this puts them right where they ought to be. It also is much closer to the lands of Midian and Amalek. If they're down in the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula and they have a war with Amalek and they're right close to the Midianites, you have to answer some questions, and, and maybe there's some archaeology that we haven't uncovered yet. But the archaeology we already have uncovered, and what the Bible tells us, is that would have been right in the, the correct place. This mountain has had a long tradition in Bedouin and Arabic tradition. So that would be Muslim tradition. There's also Muslim traditions for the other one as well. But the Bedouin tribes and other nations that lived there before had these places that they called the Caves of Jethro because this is traditionally where Jethro had met with Moses. Also, as we saw in the one where we looked at the Red Sea, the book of Deuteronomy is going to reference very often the passage to the Promised Land went through Edom and the land of Seir. There's a passage, I believe it's in chapter 1, where it talks. It kind of hops over the mountains. It goes from Mount Sinai to Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, up to Jerusalem. And that's exactly where that would be, in a direct line from Sinai through Edom to the Promised Land. And now, if the location is Jabal al-Laz, and I, don't, I, I truly don't know the answer to this one, but I probably would give this one the edge, if that's the case, there are a few things that we find at this mountain that become very, very interesting to us. For example, we have carvings of calves all over this place. And you can go and look these up. I don't have any of them on the slide today. There's a great altar that I also don't have a picture of that was built there that dates from the time of Moses. So somebody was worshiping at this mountain with a big altar. It's got the caves, as I said. You can see in the picture in the upper right, maybe it's kind of difficult to make out. There are several carvings of what appear to be menorahs, which would be the golden lampstands that were in the, in the, of course, in the tabernacle later on in the temple, which is a distinctively Jewish drawing. 
So if that's there, that's pretty significant. Also, you've got a picture there of what many uh, consider to be the split rock, the rock that Moses struck with his staff. There's a lot of water erosion that goes from there and, and becomes very interesting to look at. Now, the simple truth is I don't know. And what very often happens when we have these geographical discussions is we weigh the evidence and then somebody starts talking about the wiggly feelings they had when they got on top of one of those mountains. You know, like, well, here's the evidence. But, you know, when I got up there, I just knew I was, okay, well, that's nice. But we have, you can go to any mountain and feel that way. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of people that want to claim that this place or other is, uh, is some biblical land. And I think that there's a good debate to be had over this, and it certainly should be a positive one and not an angry one. But I do think that it might be for the best that we don't know exactly where it was, just like the Lord didn't want Israel to know where Moses' body was buried, because they probably would have made relics out of it, and they would have worshipped it. The same reason God had them break the bronze serpent later, because the Lord had used the bronze serpent to do a great miracle for them. They kept it, and then they started worshipping it. So God said, all right, break that thing into pieces. I'd rather it be gone than you start worshipping it. So that's up to you to do your own research. Use credible sources, not weird people online, and, and uh, see what you think. And if you come to a different conclusion than mine, then that's just fine. But we're in one of these two places, and neither one of their, these locations is going to have any bearing on how we interpret this, this passage. So that's important to know. Let's move on to verse 3 now. How about I turn there? While Moses went up to God... The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Moses goes up the mountain and God tells him to offer the covenant to Israel. He says, go and tell them I want to make a covenant with them. You can't grab this in English, but in verses 3 through 6, these words are written in a poetic Hebrew style. It's in a, a parallel structure, chiastic structure. If you don't know what a chiasm is, it's, it's an inverted outline. It kind of Our outlines go 1, 2, 3. A chiastic outline would go 1, 2, 3, 2, 1. So uh, just to show you here very quickly... Part one would be, you, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. And then in verse six, you've also got, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. One level down, verse four, he tells them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So that's what the Lord had done for them. And then on the other side of it, it says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what God's going to do for them. And then right in the middle, you have, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. This is a very common old fashioned structure of, of organizing things. So it's, it's poetic. It could have been a song. Interesting to think of the Lord singing or reciting poetry to Moses. But you can see it starts with, starts and ends with, thus shall you say, and then in one level down, here's what I did, here's what I'm going to do, and then right in the middle, if you will obey. So, cool little structure there that you can miss in the English. This serves as what you could call the prologue of the covenant. The covenant that we're going to read from Exodus and, and going on bears a lot of similarities to other political treaties of the day. If they were going to make somebody a king, he would go through something like this. Here's all the wars I've won for you, and if you will have me as your king, then... 
I will be your king and you'll be my people. And then they would sign it and then they would go through the long list of all the laws and things like that. So the Lord is, is using a, a structure of literature that would have been familiar to these people. And that's the first thing he does. So let's walk through this now. The first thing God does is he outlines what he has done for the people. And in so doing, he rehearses the Exodus. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Someone said in their commentary, that word for eagle can either mean eagle or vulture. I don't know that vulture is the best way to describe the Lord's deliverance. So we'll stick with eagle. I like that a little better. He says, this is what I have done for you. And then you need to remember what has been done up to this point. There have been signs ranging from the staff turning into a serpent and Moses putting his hand in his cloak and it becoming leprous and, and then back again. There were the 10 plagues, the water turning to blood and all that. There was the race to the sea while they were following the Shekinah glory of the Lord and the military victory that God not only gave them over Egypt, but over Amalek in the, in the recent chapters. And also the miraculous provision. We can't forget that every morning the manna is out on the ground. The Lord had sent them quail. He had provided water from the rock for them. He's done everything for them. And this is an example of what you might call prevenient grace, where God is reaching out to bless and deliver the people before he even brings salvation to them. Much in the same way the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit drawing us to himself. And then when you get saved, you look back and you realize, wow, God was working all the while, wasn't he? So that's what the Lord says. First, look what I've done for you. Second, he outlines their responsibilities. This is what I've done for you. And if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this is their responsibilities to worship the Lord and to keep his covenant. That is to keep the law that God is going to lay down for them. He says, all right, I brought you out. I didn't charge you anything for it. I just delivered you. Now I'm calling you to obey me, to submit to me voluntarily, and to keep my law and my covenant. It's a commitment of faith. It's a commitment of worship. The, Lord, the first thing the Lord is going to tell them is, you shall have no other gods before me. So the Lord says, I'm telling you to cast off any old philosophy, any old religion, any old idols that you've got, and just Worship me. It's also the first law they're going to break, by the way. And he says, you will worship me expressed by your obedience to the law. He says, how will I know that you are worshiping me? By keeping the law that I'm laying out. And this is very similar to what Jesus said, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, and it could be very well that Jesus is making reference to this principle from the Old Testament when he says that. And this is important to remember. That your relationship with God, as much as he loves you, as much as he is that friend that sticks closer than a brother, the Bible says, it is still the relationship of subject and master. He is your king. And we, as Americans, don't have kings. We don't particularly like kings. So, we need to learn what it means to obey the Lord. You don't obey the Lord like you obey anybody else in this country. If we had a dictator, it would probably be a little easier for us to grasp this idea. God does not rule by consent of the governed. The Lord is the king. He is God. He is, the New Testament will even use the word despotes in Greek. It's where we get the word despot or dictator from. Because the Lord doesn't need your input. <laughs> he tells you what to do and you obey him. Now, is the Lord also your, your friend and the bridegroom? Yes, of course. But he's also God and you are not. And you need to remember that. Ecclesiastes will say, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. 
can Americanize that. God's up there, you're down here, so shut up. You don't need to talk so much when you come to the Lord. You don't need to walk in like you know what you've got, you know, like you've got something to say. You can come in and listen, because he's in heaven and you're on earth. And this is the Lord establishing a very clear relationship here. But the Lord does not just come in and demand it, does he? He says, look at all that I've done for you first, and then he invites them to have a relationship with him. And third, he says, here's what I will do if you will obey me. He says, I will make you my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. He says, all the earth is mine, but I'm choosing you to be my special people. Deuteronomy 32 elaborates on this a little bit, verses 8 and 9. It says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And I believe this is a reference to what Paul will talk about as principalities and powers. What we see in Daniel, that the sons of God, which is an angelic reference, that when God divided their nations, he has established stewards and guardians and even angelic rulers over the nations. These would then rebel against the Lord, and there are other psalms where the Lord establishes judgment against them, right? We saw in Exodus that God brought judgment not just against the people of Egypt, but against the gods of Egypt. He had usurped the Lord's authority. So he gave to the nations their inheritance, but verse 9 he says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So the first thing we have in this verse is a strong monotheistic statement. He's saying, all the world is mine. Thor doesn't own Norway, right? Zeus doesn't own Greece. Krishna is nobody. I don't care what the Indians say. All the world is mine, but I will choose you to be my special people. I own the whole world. So there are those that will tell you, they'll say things like, well, Israel believed in other gods and the Bible talks about other gods. No, the Bible talks about one God and a whole lot of false gods that are demons that have claimed more authority than they deserve. So for me, it's a, it's a matter of, of, I guess, what's the word? Spite against Satan to refuse to use the term gods to describe his demons. <laughs> There's only one God, one Lord. And the world has been given over to Satan, who is called the little g, God of this world. But what's God saying here? He says, but I'm going to pick you. Every other nation has its, its, its ruler and its own way of going about things. I'm going to pick you. It's going to be me against all of them. And we'll see who comes out on top. It's like when you're playing with your little brother or something like that. He says, I'll give you a head start of 25 points. And we'll play to 30 and we'll see who wins. That's kind of what the Lord is doing. I'm going to give you all a major head start. Watch me get the whole world back with just one nation. Actually, you started with just man, one man. That was Abraham, wasn't it? You know, like, all right, I'll give you all everybody. I just want this guy. And now, that, I mean, this is a big theme of the book of Exodus. God's showing in and saying, I am the true Lord, and these are my true people. He's getting the world's attention again. And this covenant is pretty simple, really, in its most basic form. He says, after all that I've done for you, will you serve me so that I may bless you? Pretty straightforward. And who wouldn't take that deal? Wow, God just delivered me from slavery. He's asking me to obey him so that he'll give me more blessings. But there are many that won't even accept something as simple as that. We like our pride too much. So what's going on here theologically? This is a, is a, 
It's a different covenant, and yet it's also not from what the Lord made with Abraham. God told Abraham that he was going to establish the covenant. I'll just read it, 17.7 of, of Genesis. The Lord said, I will establish my covenant, which is my agreement, my contract, you could almost put it, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. Through Abraham, God established a permanent relationship between him and his descendants. And now that Abraham is long gone, as is Jacob, as is Isaac, he says, I'm going to establish my covenant with your generations. And this is going to be what we call the Mosaic Covenant. It is a fulfillment of what God promised through Abraham. Although, Paul will be very clear to point out, there is a distinction between what God did through Abraham and what he did through Moses. Because what he's going to do through Moses is going to come to an end. But what's going to happen through Abraham is going to continue forever. He'll make a distinction between the promise and the covenant Hebrews will talk about this Mosaic covenant that will give way to the new covenant. But it is important to know that this is a further extension of God's choosing of Abraham. And will lead on to the special relationship God has with David and all the way down to Jesus Christ himself. So if you're taking notes, let me give you five quick reasons why God is going to give this, this law. Because we've talked about in Romans for some time now that the, the law was completed and fulfilled in Christ and now has passed away. The New Testament uses all kinds of language to describe the end of the Mosaic law. It is certainly, and never was, required for salvation. Not even for the Jews, by the way. The only thing God requires of anybody to be saved now is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So why did God give them this set of rules that we're going to spend some time studying? Number one, it, the, the covenant was given, the Mosaic law was given to govern Israel. They're going to be an actual nation. They were slaves and now they're not slaves. They're going to go into their own land to have their own system of government and law. And this is what the Lord is going to lay out. A lot of it's going to be kind of odd to you. Like, why is it in the Bible that you have to have a railing on your ceiling? Like if you've got a roof, or not your ceiling, your roof. If, you're, if you say you have to have a railing on your roof, why is that in the Bible? It, it's, it's a legal thing. It's the same reason they tell you you have to have car seats for your kids. Like if somebody's walking up on your roof and they fall off, that's your fault. And you say, is that spiritual? Well, it was social. It was civil. It was government. And a lot of these things, well, the Bible says that we have to kill such and such that does this. God was handing down legal penalties for breaches of the law. Not a spiritual theological law. The actual law. The speed limit type of law. So that's the first thing. Number two, the law was given to separate Israel. Many of the things God does, he's going to say, so that other people will know that you're mine. Things like you, you're not allowed to shave the corners of your beard. <laughs> things like you need to wear tassels on your robes. Things like the Sabbath day and the food laws were intended to distinguish Israel from the rest of the world and worked like a charm, didn't it? Everywhere the Jews go, people know who they are. And unfortunately, they, they give in to prejudice and hatred very often. But it was intended to separate them, to be different, because God's going to do something different through these people. Number three, it was given to instruct Israel. Just to instruct them in who God is, what he approves, what he doesn't approve. This still benefits us to this day. We're studying it right now to be instructed about the Lord. And this is what Paul will say in the New Testament. He'll say, what happened before was written down for our benefit and instruction. So as they go through this, they learn what the Lord thinks about sexuality. They learn what the Lord thinks about cleanliness. They learn what the Lord thinks about anger and murder and revenge and all kinds of things. 
Over and over, the Lord will give a bunch of laws and then give this long theological description of why. For I, the Lord, am. And he'll explain. So to instruct them. Number four was simply to bless them. The law was going to give them a better life than the nations around them. I've used the example of, of eating pork very often. He says, don't eat the pork. And you say, well, why not? I love bacon. Well, because they did not have the technology to cook this at the time. Everybody else was getting sick and Israel didn't. In fact, this would go on for many, many generations, even beyond the New Testament, where Israel was still keeping, or the Jews, I should say, were still keeping all these cleanliness laws. So when things like the bubonic plague sweep through the nations, they're not getting sick because they're washing their hands and because they're taking the refuse outside the city and they're making sure they don't touch somebody who's getting sick. And if something gets in the house, they either got to burn it or they got to clean it. And, you know, it sounds an awful lot like COVID restrictions, doesn't it? And so they're not getting sick. And so all these people in Europe go, they must be evil because everybody else is getting sick. And the answer was, well, you're, you need to wash your hands. You're not supposed to eat dead. Like, we're going to read some of these things. You're just going to laugh. It's like, why do you need that? Well, when you go to some of these countries that have been untouched by the gospel or even by modern medicine and science, you'll see things that will astound you when I gone to Nepal. And when I went to Nepal, I learned for the first time what cleanliness is next to godliness means. It's, it's very true. The, the churches and the Christians and those that know the Lord, they're, they're cleaner. I mean, quite literally, cleaner. And it's funny because in India and in Nepal, they'll use terms like unclean quite a bit. Yeah, the things they do are, are vile and repulsive. And, and I'm not even talking morally, just like sick to your stomach. Like, why would you do that? Why are you embracing that dog? Why are you pouring cow urine on your head? Why are you things like that? So the Lord's trying to bless them by teaching them these things. And number five, believe it or not, God gave the law to Israel to evangelize Israel. We read about this in, in Romans. We see it in Galatians. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And it says in Corinthians that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. It means if you take my law seriously, you're going to end up in Christ and the liberty that you have in Christ. This is why Hebrews will go to such great lengths to explain why the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. And so in this first little section here, God just very basically says, if you obey me and keep my covenant, I'll bless you. That is the covenant that God gave to Israel in the smallest term you could possibly put it. And the rest of these books are going to be expanding and elaborating on these things. But I want to get to verse 6 because this is, this is the one that always stands out to me. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That little sentence right there sums up the purpose of why God chose Israel in the first place. Why would God choose Abraham at all? He says, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now this implies, first of all, privilege. You're my special set apart holy nation. You're also a kingdom. You're also priests. And we don't think of priests as really a status thing. But back in this day, absolutely, a priest was up here. To go back to Nepal and India, the priests are the very top of the caste system. So he's giving them a, a national privilege that as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the rest of the world, y'all are at the top. You're my kingdom. You're my holy nation. You're my priests. That's why in Genesis 12, 3, it says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. But this statement also implies responsibility, as all privilege ought to, right? That in you, God told Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All along, 
God intended to reach beyond his nation to reach the other nations. And Exodus has already given us a profound example of that in chapter 18 with Jethro. That was always what God wanted to do with his people, to attract other people that were sensitive to the Lord and looking for the truth to see Israel and go, wow, their God is real. If you've, I've watched it several times since we've been studying this book, the Ten Commandments, the last line that Pharaoh has in the movie is, his God is God. And it's like, yeah, that's what the Lord is trying to teach the whole world through these people. It was never just about them. It was to reach the whole world, to show them that, no, there is a true and living God, and he's in Israel. This is what David said to Goliath, do you remember? And then all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. That was always God's plan. And this is why that priest language is so important. A priest does two things. Number one, he represents God to the people. Priest comes out and speaks for God. Moses will speak the laws of the Lord. The priests will have the responsibility to teach people. Later on, I believe it's Jehoshaphat is going to set up a system of teachers throughout the land of Israel from the priesthood to teach the law. But also, a priest represents the people to God. A priest takes the people's sins metaphorically and symbolically into the temple or the tabernacle so that they can be paid for. And that's what Israel was to be for the whole world and is for the whole world. They were to be an example to the world, a teacher, an intercessor for everybody else. That as the world saw them, they'd see the light of God shining through them. And they'd say, I need to, I need to know what's going on in Israel. And in fact, that is exactly who Jesus Christ is. He is the ultimate, the ultimate Israel in one person. He is everything that God intended for that nation in one man. He is the one that represents God to the people and represents the people to God. He is our high priest. In fact, in Isaiah 42, verse 6, which is a prophecy of the Messiah, one of those famous servant of the Lord prophecies, Isaiah 53 is another one. This is what he says about the Messiah, Jesus. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. So Jesus Christ would carry the covenant, the new covenant for the people. And that last line in that verse, he says, a light for the nations. That word for nations in Hebrew is goyim. It's translated quite often Gentiles. That the Messiah of Israel, the one that would sit on the throne of David, was to be a light for the other nations. Already, we can see by referring to a priesthood here, by being a kingdom of priests, that anticipates the great high priest of Israel of the order of Melchizedek, who was Jesus, which of course speaks to his death on the cross and the sacrifice that he made of his own blood. So even in these first words of the covenant, we're already anticipating its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Somebody's got to say amen or something. Look at that. You're going to be a king of priests, and then the greatest of you will be king and priest, and his name will be Messiah Jesus. And he's not just going to bring light to you. He's going to bring light to all the nations, and that's going to be the new covenant in him for all people. Right now, the rest of the world was in what Paul in Acts 17.30 called the times of ignorance. You know, if you want to use dispensational terms, they were under the... Noahic covenant, the covenant of Noah, where the Lord said, you're essentially under the laws of your governors and your kings and your own consciences. And Paul called this the time of ignorance because they didn't know anything about God. 
All of Exodus is, is God breaking into the world and shining the light through one nation. And you're going to see that it's, it's about all that could be done to maintain that light in the one nation until you get to Jesus Christ and the Lord takes matters into his own hands. The times of ignorance. So God calls these people and makes a covenant with them to shine the light into the ignorance of the world. And I'm, of course, referring to spiritual and theological ignorance. The Mosaic Covenant was not made for Gentiles. This is important to know. Nor were the Gentiles ever intended to be brought into it. And that's not agreed upon by everybody. They say, well, no, the Lord always intended to bring them in. That's why we have the image of the olive tree in Romans 11. No, not exactly. Even in the Old Testament, God is promising a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Not like the one I made with your fathers, with Moses. I'm going to make a covenant that is internal. That is, I'm going to write my law on your heart rather than on tablets of stone. Ezekiel 36, I'm going to take that stony, hard heart out of you and put a new heart in you. Where else does that happen except by the Holy Spirit of God? That's the process of, of regeneration. Isaiah 42, 6, we already read it, that Christ, the servant of the Lord, would be the covenant for the people, the new covenant. So the old covenant needed to pass away. Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty, 20, when they're at the Last Supper, they had eaten and he took the cup and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Not the blood of bulls and rams. And there's going to be all kinds of ceremonies and rituals that will inaugurate the covenant. The new covenant was brought into being when Jesus died on the cross and shed his own blood. Through Jesus Christ, God would fulfill what he promised to Abraham and what he promised to the Israelites here to bless the world and raise up a king and a priest that all could come and worship and bow the knee to. The unfortunate thing is that Israel never lived up to this mandate. And this is going to be the long tragedy of the Old Testament. It's going to start out so well. We're not even going to get through all of the laws until they start worshiping the golden calf. And this is exactly what Paul told us and what Peter says in the New Testament. Nobody could keep this covenant. Nobody could keep this law. Because even though they were God's chosen people, it's almost worse. Because their sin abounds where the law is. And in fact, Romans says that the law came to increase the trespass. Remember, God was instructing them, not just about him, but also about themselves, that they can't save themselves. And of course, the height of Israel's failure was when they crucified Jesus on the cross. We have no king but Caesar, they said. And of course, the Gentiles are not innocent in that. <laughs> Pontius Pilate was right there. He's the one that, that gave the order, representing all of us Gentiles. Even though the, the, the nation of Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, and that they were anticipating the Messiah who would be a light to the Gentiles, and there would be a new covenant, not like the old covenant, even the early church and the disciples and the apostles had a hard time fathoming most messianic people who were not Jews. They couldn't quite wrap their minds around that. And this is why God needed somebody as hard-headed as Paul. This is why God needed what was essentially a radical terrorist, a violent religious zealot, to fill him up with the Holy Spirit, work on him for about 15 years, and then send him out there. And now he's got that same zeal and that same fire, but this time it's for the inclusion of the Gentiles. So that all of these brothers in Christ that were still steeped in all their traditions would hear the voice of this man to stand up and say, no, I'm not budging on this one. And in Galatians even, he'll say, 
No, I didn't even learn this from the other apostles. I don't need to hear them. I've heard from the Lord himself, even though the apostles were on his team. Paul is making very clear, even if, you know, though none go with me, still I will follow. But the church learned this. And they, they said, wow, so God has given to the Gentiles the gift that he's given to us as well. And without getting too far into the, to the doctrine of this, it's important to know that God is not finished with his nation, with Israel. As Romans 11 makes abundantly clear. He says, God, God foreknew and chose them. The election and the gifts of God are without repentance. They're irrevocable. When God chooses somebody, he doesn't say, oh, sorry, I unchose you. You and me better hope that God doesn't unchoose people, by the way, because we also have been chosen. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And we go, oh, thank you, Lord. But if God also goes, but you know, sometimes I, I change my mind. Like, oh boy, now we're in serious trouble. Well, what about, they crucified Jesus. Yes, and that's why they are now under judgment from the Lord. But Romans 11 says this is such a mysterious thing that one day God's going to bring them all back. We're waiting for that. We're waiting for their redemption. And in the meantime, we live in the foretaste of the new covenant, waiting for it to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns. So God chose one nation to represent him on the earth. And if you remember back far enough, we're still waiting on the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When the Lord said, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so then what did he do? He chose Abraham. Well, first he preserved the world through Noah, right? And then he chose Abraham and preserved it through Isaac and preserved it through Jacob and gave Jacob this nation. And now he's led them out of Egypt and he's going to give them his law. And someday from this nation is going to come the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then later on, God's going to say, David, he's going to be your descendant. He's going to sit on the throne forever. And then that term son of David becomes synonymous with Messiah or promised one. And it all starts right here. You know, this is why we as Christians, as most of us Gentiles who live in Alabama, say words like hallelujah. That's not English. That's Hebrew. Hallel means praise. Yah is like Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That's why we say words like Messiah or amen. That's why we read a Bible that has been translated from Hebrew. That's why we pray to the Jewish God. Because it was through them that God was getting the world's attention. Like, let's just take a second. What a blessing to be part of God's chosen people. That's why Paul will say in places, you know, no, yeah, listen, the Jews don't have any advantage in salvation, but what a glorious thing to be one of God's chosen people. In Romans 11, he gets very stern with some of the Gentiles that think that they've taken the place of the Jews. He goes, God snapped off the branches so that you could be grafted in. What makes you think God can't snap you off? Take it easy. <laughs> Pray for them. Love on them. And I ought to say, this shouldn't need to be said, but I'll just say it. There is no room for any kind of hatred of Jews in God's church. First of all, we don't hate anybody. We're supposed to love everybody, even our enemies. But there's always that, that strange, demonic, insidious hatred of Jews that's always threatening to come back. And it always looks different for every generation. But we in the church ought to know better. And when people start saying weird things about Jews or weird things about Israel or about whatever, we shut that down right away. <laughs> Say, no way, I'm only saved because of those people. And Paul says, as concerns the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but they're also your brothers. And you love them and you take care of them and you do everything you can to get the good news to them. They've been blinded, but they've not been forsaken. Verses seven and eight. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. 
All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So we've left that poetic introduction, that chiastic introduction. Moses returns, speaks to the elders, the elders speak to the people, and all the people say, well, of course we'll serve the Lord. They might be changing their tune later on, but at least at this moment they've got the right thing to say. There's going to be ceremonies that will establish the the covenant. There will be miracles that the Lord does to seal the moment, but this is that all-important, yes, Lord, Very much like when you get saved, we have an initial moment we say, Lord, I'm going to serve you. But it seems like every so often the Lord just just presses it in a little more, you know? I feel like I'm more saved today than I was. Even though I know you can't be more saved, but I feel like, wow, was I even following Jesus before? That's what the Lord does with his people. Without these words, history might have gone very differently, huh? You know, I've already compared the new covenant to the old quite a bit. But I want to take some time to look at some of these specific things and, and, and bring this to a point of application for us. You know, we live under the new covenant. We live under the fulfillment of everything that God promised to the nation of Israel in Christ Jesus. The blessing, the seed that God promised to Abraham was been fulfilled in Jesus. The salvation, the atonement that is foretold in the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. The king who will sit on the throne is fulfilled in Jesus. The priestly covenant that he'll make with the Levites is fulfilled in Jesus. The new covenant where God says, I'm going to write my my law in your heart, is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Everything comes to a big crashing conclusion in Jesus. And we live under that new covenant now. The foretaste of glory divine. We're waiting for Jesus to return as in his mercy he allows the gospel to be spread. So how does the new covenant parallel the old one? Well, like the Mosaic Covenant, God stepped in to rescue us, to perform a miraculous act of salvation before any one of us believed or agreed to it. God reached out and brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of his own initiative and his own sovereign grace. He heard them crying out for help and he said, let me help you. And Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord stepped in to save humanity before anybody had believed in him. That's why Jesus on the cross would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're so lost that they need me. Aren't you glad that the Lord took the initiative? That God stepped in first? You didn't have to go in and you know, swim to the depths of the ocean and, and consult with the king of Atlantis and find out what quest you've got to go on to be saved. The Lord stepped in and himself rescued you. And like the Mosaic Covenant number two, God offers a relationship for those who will obey him and worship him. So first, remember, he said, look what I have done for you. And then he says, if you will obey me, right? If you will obey my commandments. He's offering a relationship for those who will obey and worship him. And I think we need to recover that word because it was used a lot when I was growing up. And I feel like some people misused it. And a lot of folks want to move away from it out of embarrassment. But you got to reclaim that. There, there are some, most people in the world don't know God. They don't know how to know God. They don't know anything about God. And they kind of feel like they're adrift in the universe. You know God. Amen. And that should be characterized, like the Lord said to the children of Israel, by obedience. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, oh, I love God, I love Jesus. All right. He will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus says, If you obey me and serve me, I will make my home with you. And again, who wouldn't take that deal? 
Who wouldn't take that deal? Number three, like the Mosaic Covenant, we have a responsibility to testify to the whole world what God has done and to function as their intercessors, just as they were a kingdom of priests to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. We have that same responsibility. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He says, I do everything I can and I don't count any of my wants or desires into the equation. I do it, he said, for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Who's them? The people he's trying to save. He says, I've given up everything of my life so that I could share the blessings of salvation with those lost and dying people. Even the ones that persecuted and hated him. You have that responsibility too. If the Lord has, has come down and saved you and you've put your faith in him, you've got to tell somebody. You've got to tell the world that Jesus died on the cross and loves them so much. You can't keep that to yourself. That was Israel's problem. It became all about them. And we're just going to walk around and be the chosen people. And there's some folks in the church that want to do that too. William Carey, the famous English missionary, when he was trying to raise funds to go to India and preach the gospel, he was talking in a church and this old man in the church stood up and said, Young man, sit down. When God sees fit to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. If God's going to do it, God's going to do it. Let's just be over here and be the church. God has already told us how he's going to do it, and it's through us. Get out there and turn the world upside down. Turn your job upside down. Turn your family upside down, which is really what? Right side up. And like the Mosaic Covenant number four, it requires an act of your will to enter into this new covenant. You have to respond to what the Lord said. The Lord never bullies anybody into the kingdom. Even Paul, who he knocked off of his horse and shone a, bro a bright light, Paul still had to say, what must I do, Lord? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which is a commitment of loyalty, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No fakers. Nobody comes in and just gets through, oh, I took communion, got baptized, I'll be fine. No, no, no. If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, don't believe those people that tell you, well, you know what, you don't have to believe all that stuff. As long as you get the gist of it. No, no. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, it requires an act of your will to enter into this new covenant. And while we haven't read it yet, we're going to get to it. The new covenant or the old covenant is going to be sealed with the blood of a lot of sacrifices. And the new covenant likewise has been sealed with the blood of Jesus. Once and for all. You don't need to come back every year and sacrifice Jesus. This is what the, the Catholic Church gets very wrong about the Mass. Is they call themselves priests because they are going through the actions of ceremoniously sacrificing Christ again. And they believe that spiritually that's exactly what's happening. He's dying anew for sins. That's not what the Word says. He says, it says the priest had to wake up every morning and offer a new sacrifice. Christ, once and for all. He died on the cross and that's it. It's a better sacrifice. It's a better sanctification. It's better blood. And it all depends on grace, not on your works. And later on, Israel is going to fail in their covenant. Moses will be on the mountain and they're going to worship the golden calf. They're going to get right to the brink of the promised land, chicken out, vote to kill Moses and go home. Only the pillar of clouds intervention is going to save him. 
They're going to go after other gods repeatedly in the land. They're going to be exiled for abandoning the covenant and chasing after other gods and failing to heed God's word. They will crucify Christ himself. They'll persecute his church. And we hear that and we look at this story and we say, he just brought you out of the land of Egypt. How is it possible that you could reject the Lord that did that for you? But my brother or sister, haven't we done the same thing? After all God's done for you, to be a Christian has nothing to do with your culture or your preferences. If it does, you've got to step back and rethink it. Those things have no authority. What you want has no authority. What everybody else does has no authority. Only Christ has authority over you. We are obedient servants. Remember, there's always a position of, of master and subject between you and God. They call Jesus Lord and Master. And Jesus didn't say, hey, don't call me that. Don't be so formal. He said, you call me Lord and Master and you do well, for so I am. Have you abandoned your commitment to the new covenant? You, you did all the entry stuff, but now you're just kind of letting it go. Oh, grace will get me in in the end. You must repent and start anew before it's too late. And you know, when we say too late, we talk about death, but let me, let me just say this. Don't spend all the best years of your life waffling on whether or not you're going to serve Jesus with everything you've got. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, this is towards the end of, of this book. And this is what Solomon has to say towards the end. I'm just going to read verse 1 and then verses 6 and 7. He says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. He says, do you want to live your whole life in sin and then have a few miserable years left to serve the Lord full of regret? Or do you want to remember the Lord in your youth and have a whole life laid out ahead of you where you can serve Jesus Christ? And you can say, I regret nothing. You can come like Paul to the end and say, I fought the fight. I, I ran the race. I kept the faith. There's always a later, Christian. There's always a after I graduate, after I get married, after I get a job, after I have kids, after I buy a house, after the kids move out, after the grandkids grow up a little bit, after I retire. You can, you can kick that can down the road the rest of your life. But, but Solomon, somebody who knew a thing or two about wasted years, he said, don't wait. Don't wait. It doesn't matter if you committed any of those things that have caused you to fall out of the covenant, so to speak. Or you're like, I, I'm, not doing, I'm not holding up my end of this thing. I promised Jesus. I swore on my knees with tears in my eyes. Lord, I'll never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. Everything you told me I will do. I'll never sin again. I'll preach the gospel. I'll obey your calling. I'll stand up for truth. And you've allowed yourself to be seduced away by the sins of the world. Remember your creator now. Because the good news is just as Israel was not abandoned, and Paul will say, how dare you? He's going to use one of those megenoita, God forbid phrases, over the question, has God forgotten his people? Has he cast off Israel? He says, of course not. No. And neither are you. You're hearing this. What are you going to do with the time you have remaining? Because you don't know how much time you have remaining. Jesus Christ could return tomorrow, tonight. I've told you the story before of my friend in college who 
sweet godly girl fell out of her bunk bed, hit her head and died. She didn't do anything wrong. She didn't have any plans to do that. She wasn't in sin. She was just gone. You don't know. You don't know. You don't have to be doing anything dangerous. You don't have to be in sin. You don't have to be testing God. You don't know when the end is coming. So are you going to heed the covenant and obey? This was God's centuries-long plan to draw Israel and the nations to His Son, Jesus. You're not held back by ethnicity or language or geography or time. You can come and be one of God's special, peculiar possessions today. But it takes you bowing the knee like Israel did and say, yes. And I want to end by praising the Lord for for doing this. Because who else but God could have done such a thing? To unite all the nations in one man, his son Jesus Christ, who is worthy of praise and adoration and service. And in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, after reading Exodus chapter 19, these are familiar words. They said in heaven, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. A kingdom and priests in service to our great king and our high priest, Jesus Christ.